The following is a conversation between John McIntosh, Managing Director of Sea Change Capital Partners, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Nonprofits are critical, but because they are generally under-resourced and have inadequate outside support, they are particularly vulnerable to the impact of this COVID-19 pandemic. Sea Change Capital Partners is an organization that is helping them navigate this extraordinarily difficult time and to share what they're doing and advising. It's a pleasure to have with us John McIntosh, the Managing Director of Sea Change Capital Partners. Welcome to the Business of Giving, John. Thank you for having me, Denver. First, tell us about your organization and the work you do. Well, Sea Change was founded as a nonprofit in 2007 in the belief that some of the skills developed in finance, technology, real estate could, if combined with empathy and humility, help nonprofits facing complex challenges and at the same time meet the needs of funders. And that's what we've been doing ever since, trying to find ways to be the champion for nonprofits facing complex challenges but because what they often need are grants or loans, do it in a way that is also attractive to foundations and wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, a good starting point for us, John, might be for you to tell us the health of the nonprofit sector even before this pandemic struck. It's an interesting question. We started looking at this three or four years ago when 990 data became widely available in electronic format. And I thought the results were in a way, no surprise, but a real eye-opener for many people. And I think in rough terms, pre the pandemic, I would say almost 50% of organizations have really no margin for error. They have cash or operating reserves of less than two months. And I think if you look at the other side, maybe 20, 30% of organizations appear to be in a financial position in terms of their cash or their reserves, where they've got a margin for error, where they can take a hit. So that's from a cash perspective, I think, the normal situation is enormously fragile. And the other thing I would add to that is, and it's no surprise because nonprofits don't exist to make a profit. They don't exist to earn surpluses. But if you look over any span of time, the typical nonprofit surplus margin, profit margin, if you want, is about 1%. So there's really no ability to generate the kind of surplus that you can put away for a rainy day. And obviously there are exceptions, some of the big culturals, Harvard University, but the overwhelming majority of not-for-profits out there are living very close to the edge, even in the normal course. And so when something like COVID happens, have just very, very little margin for error. Yeah, I can only imagine what the impact of that must have been. And you authored an article recently where there was a survey which was conducted by La Piana Consulting, which showed what this impact had been. And it had been pretty dramatic, wasn't it? It's been amazing. I think that as we've tried to say, nonprofits have been affected in very different ways. Some are basically forced to hibernate because they're simply unable to do what they were doing. Their theater is closed. Mm. The schools where they provided mental health counseling are not open. You know, others like food pantries or what have you have seen an increase in demand, but the effect on revenue, the effect on expenses, the difficulty in staffing, really, really very staggering, to tell you the truth. I think that's the only word I can use. I started this series on COVID-19 with nonprofit organizations about four or five weeks ago. And it's interesting, John, at the beginning of the series, people were talking about preservation. They were looking at their programs, they were looking at their staffs, and they were seeing what they could do to keep them intact. 
Now these conversations are more about survival. And you have issued a report called Tough Times Call for Tough Action. Share with us some of the recommendations in that report. Sure. You know, when the crisis hit, we, over a period of two or three weeks, spoke to several dozen not-for-profits. Some of them were thinking about taking tough decisions and wanted a sounding board or a counselor. Some, quite frankly, with some element of pride, were just calling to tell us what they'd done. Over a period of weeks, we spoke to several dozen not-for-profits. We heard what they were doing. We shared our thoughts. And by the end of that period, our advice had stabilized. It wasn't changing anymore. Mm-hmm. And we thought it was worth, therefore, quickly writing it up and sending it out into the world. And I can tell you the core message that we sent was, first and foremost, remember that the foundation of all your decision-making has to be the mission. The duty of obedience that the board has, the reason your not-for-profit was set up and exists is the mission. And so recommit yourself to the mission. And if there's confusion about what that mission is, as there is sometimes with not-for-profits, you better figure that out quickly because the mission is going to be the touchstone for your decision-making. And if something is right from the perspective of the long-term pursuit of the mission, you have to recognize that even though it may be difficult, even though it may be hard on staff or funders or vendors, it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. The second thing we recommended to people was, and this is a simple sort of taxonomy, but I think it works pretty well. Try to put yourself, your organization in one of three buckets, what we called hibernators, responders, and hybrids. So the hibernators are basically the organization who are really unable to do their program while we're in the midst of this crisis. And if that's your position, your goal needs to be reduce your expenses to the absolute bare minimum so that you can survive as long as possible to reemerge when spring comes. Gotcha. The responders are at the other end of the spectrum. The demand for their services, the importance of their services has only gone up because they're keeping foster kids safe. They're sheltering the homeless. They're distributing food on an emergency basis. So there's no question at all that they have to continue the mission. But in many cases, it's become more difficult. It's become more costly to keep people safe, to manage the staffing. And the question for those groups is cash flow. You know, how, do we, how do we do this, which we can't stop. We can't hibernate. We can't dial it down. This is the moment where we're needed more than ever. But how do we keep the lights on through May, which is, in, at least in New York, a three payroll month? And then the third, and I think the most complicated group, are what I'll call the hybrids, where there's some ability to do the work, but you may have to do it in a modified way, but it's not directly connected to COVID. And so how do you think about that? Do you voluntarily hibernate? Do you modify your service, your program in some way to be more of a responder? I think that's where many of the more difficult issues are because for the first two, the hibernators and the responders, I think what to do is pretty clear. Yeah. And then the other thing, we can go through it all, but I'll say that the third thing really is to conserve cash, to view yourself in a sort of, in a situation where you really have to look very hard at your expenses, to look very hard at cash outlays. And before you go pay the rent or pay the mortgage or pay the vendors, think really hard about whether that's the right decision right now. 
try to accelerate any revenues you can ask board members to give now mm-hmm. ask funders to be more flexible like bring it in where you can yeah and apply quickly to all the pots of money out there for which you might be eligible and which we've seen are often sort of first come first serve both philanthropic funds of various forms but also the different sorts of government assistance that a particular not-for-profit may or may not be eligible for those were kind of our big three but we have a bunch more yeah one that i liked also was shortened time horizons the relationship between nonprofits, boards and executive directors (laughs) is all over the place and i think we feel like you can't have the executive director making super important decisions completely on their own that's not good governance but you can't expect a full board meeting when things are changing so quickly and i think many of the groups that we've seen not only is the board meeting more regularly but the board chair and perhaps the executive committee or some subset of the executive committee are making themselves available almost as needed no notice so that when something happens like ppp runs out of money the executive director can reach out to them and they can figure out what to do on a time scale that is practical in this fast-moving crisis. John, what kind of carnage do you think we're looking at for America's nonprofits? I've written, and I'm sticking with it, that this really has the potential to be an extinction-level event for -for not-for-profits. And I think that there's two elements to that. If the government federal government, but also state and local, doesn't think very carefully and make sure that the various forms of aid out there are not made available. I mean, if that money needs to be made available and it may need to be modified so that it can help not-for-profits out. I think if that doesn't happen, there's nothing philanthropy and board members can do to stop Mm -hmm. the carnage. I think even if it does happen, individual not-for-profits are going to have to make some very tough decisions. And I would say, even if they do that, I believe you're going to see a fair amount of nonprofit failures. And I worry less, and I'll speak about sea change. We're six people, and I like to joke, other than the six of us, the only people who really, really care about sea change is probably my mother. Right? <laughs> if, if, if we are not systemically important. We are well, that's good. Shel- you know that. We are not sheltering you know, hundreds of people. We are not involved in the food delivery service. So if we go down, it's certainly a sad thing. But if what we were doing was worthwhile, somebody will restart us. Maybe Mm -hmm. not me. But I think you've got larger organizations in particular that if they fail, there will be enormous damage to the social safety net or to what makes our society valuable in terms of arts and culture. And it's not clear to me how easy it will be for those sorts of organizations to get restarted. And without the profit motive, it's also not clear to me that if they don't restart, somebody new will come in and fill the void. And so I really think that this is both for individual organizations, but for what we want our society to look like, really has the possibility of being enormously damaging and that everybody has a role to play. The advocates, and I think they're doing a great job, need to make sure that federal, state, and local government understand what nonprofits need. The individual boards and executive directors need to be on the case and taking tough decisions. And then the final thing I would say, and it doesn't make me popular, is you know, there's two ways that you can stop being an independent entity. 
you can just hit the wall mm -hmm. on Thursday when you run out of cash and leave your beneficiaries or your program stranded, leave your staff stranded, or you can say, you know what? I don't think that we're going to be able to continue as an independent entity. And assuming we still have some time and some degrees of freedom, let's with our head held high, let's explore how we might work with others through a merger or a joint mm -hmm. venture or divesting a program, or even God forbid, a dignified dissolution to make the best of what will still be a very bad situation. I think if we do all those things, even if the number of not-for-profits shrinks considerably, the human cost and the cost to the missions will be much, much reduced than if people are in denial, suffer from magical thinking, and just hit the wall. Yeah, I want to circle back on that merger thing in a second, but I also want to pick up on something you just said about these organizations failing. And aside from the fact that some of the most vulnerable people in our society work in many of these nonprofits, we're not just thinking, if I heard you right, about small and mid-sized organizations. It sounded as if you think there's a potential that some very large and significant and well-known organizations Let's, might be among that group. Absolutely. In the social safety, in the human service or social service, call it what you will area, you know, the truth is in New York, I have the most data, but it would be true of other major metros. You know, a relatively small number of organizations do a large percentage of the work. In New York City, there's about 4,000 organizations that get money from New York City, nonprofits, mm -hmm. and about 50 of them do half the work. Mm -hmm. In areas like food distribution, like homeless shelters, like primary health care, like foster care, there are other areas, you know, advocacy and the like, there are certainly areas where there aren't economies of scale, where there aren't benefits to scale, but in some of those essential social human services, organizations which as nonprofits go are large, dominate, and they're collectively and individually systemically important. Now, they're not large by business standards. Most of them have more than 500 employees, but they have less than, you know, than 2,500 or 3,000. Those groups, in many ways, are less financially resilient than a small group like Sea Change. And the simple reason is because they're overwhelmingly funded by government yeah. and government money from a financial standpoint is really very challenging. It's what I like to call cost minus. You don't know what they're going to pay you, but you know it costs less than the fully loaded cost <laughs> of the work. <laughs> That's it's, the only thing for sure. Right. It's cost minus money. It's usually provided on a reimbursement basis after the fact. And yes, there are advances and the like, but basically we're going to pay you less than it costs. We're going to pay you after the fact. We're going to pay you with unpredictable delays. Oh, and by the way, we can come back in the future and audit you. And we never conclude that we didn't pay you enough and give you a check, but we might conclude you owe us. Mm -hmm. So that group, while in people's imagination, bigger means more resilient, bigger means better access to capital, bigger means less in need of assistance. And while that might be true in the for-profit sector, in the not-for-profit sector, it isn't. Yeah, and so yeah. I certainly feel that larger groups may fail and that unlike in New York City, when FEGS failed and it was the largest social service nonprofit at the time, it failed. It was a self-inflicted wound. It failed for idiosyncratic reasons. And when mm -hmm. it failed, there were healthy groups around in partnership with government to pick up the pieces so that vulnerable people didn't suffer. Now, I think if a group fails, it's not surrounded by healthy brethren and government's distracted. And so what will actually happen 
if a large group that's got hundreds or in some cases thousands of vulnerable people in its residential facilities, what we do, I don't know. And the main yeah. thing to do is let's avoid that happening in the first place mm-hmm. by being in a regular dialogue and by treating, I mean, I like this term, by recognizing that some of these social service organizations should be viewed as systemically important in the same way that certain financial institutions are, and the government should do what it takes to make sure that they don't fail because they're providing essential service. And if they can't do that work, you're going to look at a real crisis amongst very vulnerable people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And as you say, the ecosystem around them now of anyone that does fail is so compromised, it's not going to be able to pick up the slack. And let's face it, a lot of these organizations get reimbursed on a per diem basis on how many heads show up through their door. And if you're doing a daycare center and nobody's coming through your door, your contract's going to say, we owe you zero. And that's just going to exacerbate the situation, make it even worse. Let's turn to the funding side of things. And we'll take foundations as an example. I think everybody would pretty much agree that foundations have been very flexible with their grantees, very responsive, are letting their restricted grants to be used for any use. The larger question, though, is going to get into what are they going to put up here during the emergency phase of this? Are they going to dig into their endowments? They will maintain we're concerned with the intermediate and long-term support of these organizations, so we don't want to invade our endowment too much. This is a discussion going back and forth. I'd like to have your take on this. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very proud of the foundation community. And I should say, I have a dog in the fight. We get important foundation support. Mm -hmm. But I hope I have a reputation as a truth teller, maybe not. I think that the way foundations have pretty quickly done what they can do, you know, relaxed restrictions on restricted grants, and come together in these emergency response funds. And as you know, foundations don't often grant make together. It's not easy for them. And so I think the fact that they've done that is amazing. As you say, I think that unless the market goes back up, many foundations will be faced with the question of do they, in effect, cut their year-over-year grant making in line with the market, or do they step up their spending to keep it flat or even grow it? And I don't think there's any single answer. I would say that there's sort of two issues you know, one is the sort of legal prudence issue. And I was very interested to hear that Jim Sheehan, who's the head of the Charities Bureau of the Attorney General's Office in New York State, has said, and I believe guidance is forthcoming on this, that, you know, in the past, there's been a rebuttable presumption that basically says, if you're spending more than 7%, the presumption is it's imprudent, and you have to show that that's not right. And they are coming out with guidance saying, in this environment, they're not presuming that spending more than 7% is imprudent. And so I hope that finance committees who really recognize that what they want to do is spend more now and maybe spend less over some period of time, but who recognize that the need is now and that if the reason not to spend more now is because you don't want to privilege the present, well, they want to privilege the present. Yeah. will feel under the law and in practice some safety in doing that. Whether they do that or not, I don't know, but you'd hate to think that there are foundations out there who really want to spend more of their endowment to keep their grant making constant or maybe increase it. And what prevents them from doing that is a fear of some outsider or how that will be viewed under the law or whatever. And I hope that those fears can be set aside. My hope is that foundations do spend more now. I think this is a moment where the present really does need privileging over the future. 
And I think the, you know, the quick math is you could spend more this year and next, and then you could spend less for four years. And I think most not-for-profits would say, that's a good trade. If that's the trade, I'll take it. But whether the foundation community does that, who knows? I know for our own planning at Sea Change, we're assuming that giving's down. Mm-hmm. And we're assuming not so much that it's down across the board, but that foundations for whom we are not an important grantee, you know, not a, not a top half, that we're likely to see cuts and perhaps significant cuts. And I think that's the best planning for nonprofits to do, because then if you're surprised, you're surprised on the upside. That's exactly right. It's the opposite of magical thinking. And that's what you need and, to do. And, and we also think, as I said, I, I think we're encouraging people. I mean, it's sad to get bad news to hear that, you know, that a particular foundation is going to reduce your grant or cut it. But I'd rather hear that as soon as they know it, rather than nine months from now when my grant's up for renewal, because yeah. it helps me as a nonprofit leader make the wisest decisions with the best information. And so what I do hope is separate and apart from where the giving is, that foundations and nonprofits are in a healthy, open dialogue so that people can do the best planning with the best information. I think that nonprofits and foundations owe that to one another. Yeah, I agree with you. And it's good stewardship to prepare for the worst and then work like hell to get as far away from that and be optimistic and hope for the best and plan for the best. But you have to look at the worst scenario square in the eye because that's the place where you have to start. So if you were the CEO of a nonprofit organization, John, let's say you made it through this crisis, albeit barely, what steps would you take with your board a year or so from now, if not sooner, to be prepared weather future storms? I think I would do two things. I'd put a renewed focus on risk management, and Mm. we've written a fair amount about that. And I'm not suggesting that people who had good risk management in place could have foreseen a pandemic. But I think recognizing that things happen, that you need to be ready, that you should be in a sort of relatively constant state of alert to say, you know, if we do multiple programs, if times got tough, what would we do? If this happened, what would we do? So I think a renewed focus on risk management and a recognition that it's not intention with intention with pursuing the mission. It's actually part of what allows you to pursue the mission on a sustainable basis is one thing I hope that nonprofits come out of this with. I think the second thing is, you know, a real commitment to being as effective and efficient as you can, even if that means exploring mergers and other forms of sustainable collaboration, that not waiting until it's a crisis to turn over every rock to think about how can we do this better, to be really sort of much more driven as a business might be for better or worse, to say, if we can use technology better, let's use it. If we can reduce our costs and partnership, let's do it. If we can get better programmatic quality in this joint venture, let's do it. Like just coming out of it with a sort of an urgency to be as efficient, as effective, as mission driven as we can, and not let, you know, ego, status quo bias, emotion get as in the way as they perhaps traditionally have. And I'm not saying that there's no role for history and emotion and ego. We all have ego. All organizations have history. We're all a little bit wedded to the way we've always done things. But I hope this sort of jars the survivors into thinking, we don't have that luxury anymore because something like this could happen again. 
and we owe it to ourselves to be really committed, even when it's not a crisis, to thinking hard about how we can be efficient and effective in the pursuit of the missions for which you know, we exist. Mm -hmm. Finally, John, how do you think this sector is gonna be reimagined in this post-COVID world? And on a larger scale, do you think we will be reimagining capitalism and the social contract in society? Yeah, yeah. wow, that, that's a long question. I hope that the fundamental role in American society that nonprofits play, the important work, the breadth and scale of work that nonprofits do in this society, which they don't do in any other society as best I can tell, mm -hmm. from social service to arts and culture to education, that that is undiminished that we neither see the sector shrinking and the things that it used to do being encroached on either by direct government provision or by for-profits or the sector shrinking and the things that it used to do simply not being done anymore. I don't wanna live in a society where a lot of what nonprofits do is done by soulless bureaucrats or by for-profit entities. And I don't want to live in a society where those things don't happen. So I hope that we're not reimagining the role that nonprofits mm -hmm. taken as a whole play. I think we're going to probably reimagine or see changes in how non-for-profits deliver that service. I do think we're going to see some element of consolidation. And again, I think that can help it happen badly where people are steamrolled or well, where people explore mergers and sustainable collaborations sort of more proactively. I think we're going to see more technology. A lot yeah. of social service not-for-profits are, you know, to use an inelegant term, psychosocial interventions. And they've traditionally been done person to person, but I think we're discovering in telemedicine and counseling and others during this period that perhaps we can use technology in a way that we maybe didn't imagine. And so I think the structure of the sector and how it delivers the work, and in particular, how it used technology may change. But I really hope the breadth and importance of the sector doesn't change. Because to me, as a recently naturalized American, it's part of what has made this country great. And if it goes away, and it goes away permanently, I think that will really be very sad. Yeah, be a shame. Yeah. Be a shame. Be a shame, better word. John, tell us about your website and the kind of information <laughs> visitors will have up yeah. uh, on it, whether yeah. they stop by. Yeah, it's a new website. So we're no longer Sea Change Capital Partners. So that's our legal name. It's Sea Change. You know, I hope particularly under the resources section, people can find things that we've assembled, some of which we've written, most of which are from others that will be of interest to them in the broad areas where we have helped nonprofits facing complex challenges, mergers and sustainable collaborations, non-traditional financings, risk management, distress, dissolutions, bankruptcies. And again, I just want to be clear, I'm not a morbid person. The reason that we're involved in dissolutions and bankruptcies and the like is not because it was of great interest. It's because when people called us, we had nowhere else to send them. And so, you know, we've gotten into some of these areas because we thought they were important and because, quite frankly, we felt there was a role to play in places like strategic planning, program evaluation, et cetera. We're not involved because there are lots of people who do that work, mm -hmm. but in the more transactional areas and the areas which are more distressed, a little bit frightening to many, it seemed like there was work to do and nobody else signed up to do it. So you'll find those in our resources section, but also um, I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. 
but my phone number and email are on the website. So as I like to joke, operators are standing by. If there's anybody who's <laughs> listening to this who wants to chat and thinks that perhaps we can be helpful, not only are we willing to take those phone calls, we welcome them. Fantastic. Well, I want to let you know how grateful I am for you taking the time to do this today and share all this great information. Thanks, John, and stay healthy. Thank you so much for having me, Denver. Stay safe.